Thank you guys for praying with us. Thank you guys for leading us in that prayer time. It's good to be with you this morning. Now, if you're just joining us and you missed our prayer time, uh, my name's Tony. I'm glad to be with you this morning. Our hope is to continue in our journey through 1 Corinthians. Right now, we're in chapter 10. Now, if you're just joining us, right, Paul has planted a church in Corinth. He stayed there for about 18 months, and now he's gone off to plant other churches. But he's still in connection with the Corinthians. He gets some gossip back and forth with friends in the Corinthian church, and the Corinthians have actually sent a delegation to Paul with specific questions they want answered. And for the last few weeks, right, Aaron has been tackling in chapters 8 and 9, what does it look like for the Corinthians to both uh, eat, this sort of connection between eating and idolatry? Now, to us, I think this might seem really culturally odd. We're like, ah, what does that even mean? Well, Aaron a few weeks ago shared how, you know, if you wanted meat in the ancient world in Corinth, right, you didn't go to Costco or Trader Joe's, right? You went uh, down to the local temple, right? Grocery shopping and worship often went together. Moreover, temples were kind of like the banquet halls of the ancient world, right? So, if you owned a, lot of, if you owned a business or you were, uh, and you had lots of contacts, right, you'd know lots of people in the city and maybe they'd invite you to one of these banquets, right? And maybe it was a wedding, maybe it was a birthday, whatever it was, right? You'd show up to the sanctuary of Asclepius, right? He's the god of medicine, and when you'd show up there, you'd see there's sort of this cultic area where there's sacrifice, and you'd see this other area where there's sort of like a dining area where gatherings were often hosted. The food was great. It was a great place to socialize if you owned a business. It was a great place for a party celebration where you could connect with other people, or maybe it was just a birthday. Right? You'd go, because that's what everyone did. Right? And then one day you hear about this guy named Jesus through this guy named Paul, and you end up believing in Jesus, you end up attending church, and as you learn more about your faith, you start asking questions about attending these gatherings. Right? You've heard uh, in Acts 15, right, the Apostolic Council, Council, these are some of the oldest leaders in the church, they told the leaders, right, they, they said to the churches, hey guys, you shouldn't eat meat sacrificed to idols, but it's kind of socially awkward and rude, right, to not attend. Someone invites you to a birthday and you're like, I don't know if I want to go, right? It might affect your social networking for your business. So you're going to have a great place to, to network and maybe get new business connections. So you feel stuck. What do you do? So you ask Paul, right? You write to Paul and you say, hey, Paul, what do we do in this situation, And Paul actually spends a lot of time focused on it, right? Chapters 8, 9, and 10 all relate to food and idolatry. He tries to help the Corinthians in chapters 8 and 9 how to decide how or see how their actions affect one another, right? So for me, attending this birthday party in the temple of Asclepius, right, the god of medicine, if I went there and I'm thinking, I'm fine. But I start bringing a brother or sister from the church, and they're like, I don't know if I feel good about this, but you kind of cajole them to going, right? Paul's like, are you really loving him or her? But in chapter 10, Paul begins with a different approach. He contends, right, that the Corinthians who attend these meals are not only lacking consideration for their brothers and sisters, but might even be putting themselves in spiritual danger. 
Paul spends a lot of chapter 10 digging into the story of Israel. And there's a lot going on here, so have some patience with me and with Paul. Uh, And this is how he begins. This is verses 1 through 5. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, I want us to start with one thing. In verse 1, Paul says, our ancestors, right? He's writing to the church in Corinth, right? These are mostly Greek folks, so most of them, right, are not Jewish. And yet, Paul says, this, the people in Israel, right, the story of the Old Testament, these are our ancestors. Their story is your story, right? And this applies to us, too, right? Sometimes when we read the Old Testament, we're like, oh, we're just reading this book about this ancient people. And Paul says, no, 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 that is your family history, These are your people. And he says, we should learn from them. Now, part of this is because the people in Corinth feel like they have experienced this profound grace of God. They're excited. I don't know if you've experienced that before. Like, you just feel like God is so present to you. Right? And then they make the assumption that because God has been so good to them, God has been so present to them, that obviously, right, they are in a good spiritual place. They're in a good spot, right? That God's faithfulness actually means that they are being faithful. Paul says, ah, you guys might be making a leap of logic here. And he points to the Old Testament, particularly the story of the Exodus, to illustrate his point, right? Verse 1, Paul says, right, that the people passed through the sea. God rescues His people right, from Israel, or from uh, bondage, from slavery in Egypt. He rescues them. And as they're going, right, they need to pass through the Red Sea to make it to the other side to get away from Pharaoh. And Paul says, remember, they passed through the sea. He says, too, in verse 1, right, that they were under the cloud, right? Because once they get on the other side of the Red Sea, what do they do? They follow The cloud by day, the presence of God in a cloud who blocks the hot sun from them. And he's like, man, that was awesome, right? Right, Corinthians? Like, look back on that time. Wasn't God faithful to the Israelites? Right, and then in verse 3, he says, and didn't God provide them spiritual food? Remember, he gives them manna from heaven. They're in the wilderness, and he gives them manna. Verse 4, he says, and he gave them spiritual drink. In Exodus 19, God provides water from a rock. Paul's like, hey guys, look back on that season. Remember the Red Sea. Remember the cloud. Remember water from a rock. Remember manna from heaven. We can all agree, right? That they received the wonder of God's provision, that God was so gracious to them. Right? And they're like, yes, yes, Paul, he was so gracious. And then Paul's like, And guess what, guys? Only Joshua and Caleb walked out of the promised land. Verse 5, God was not pleased with most of them, right? Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And Paul's trying to drive home this point. He's like, yeah, you were baptized in water, Corinthians. That's awesome. They were baptized in the Red Sea. 
You eat at the table of the Lord's presence. You, you eat the bread and drink the wine. That's awesome. Yeah, they ate manna from heaven. Right? Just because God is faithful to you, Paul is saying, it doesn't mean that you are being faithful to God. You cannot equate those things. And then Paul goes on in verses 6 through 13 to offer four examples that connect food and idolatry. Remember, that's their core question. So what's this question about, right? Can I eat from food sacrificed to idols? And now Paul gives four examples, right, that illustrate this idea, this connection between idolatry and food. Example one, verse seven. Paul writes, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Now, Paul is here referring to uh, Exodus 32. So, right, God rescues the Hebrew people from slavery. He invites, crosses the Red Sea, right? They get on the other side, and then what does God do? Moses goes up to the top of Mount Sinai, and God wants to give him the law, the Ten Commandments. He wants to guide and direct his people. And what happens on the bottom? They start pooling together their gold, melting it down, and forming a golden calf. So they can worship it. What do they do? They then eat in the presence of the golden calf that they are worshiping. And guess what? It doesn't go well for them. The second example is verse 8. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. As in one day, 23,000 of them died. Right Now Paul is riffing back to Numbers 25. Israel is told to remain separate from the people that they are entering into, right? So they're going in the promised land. He's saying, remain separate from these people. But some of the men begin to have sexual relations with the women of Moab. And their relationships lead them to then sacrifice to the God of the Moabites, the Baal of Peor. And again, the Exodus text says, not only do they bow down in the presence of of this, these gods and worship them, but they eat in the presence of those gods as well. The third example Paul offers is in verse 9. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. Right here, Paul is referring back to Numbers 21. Right, the Israelites become impatient. They begin to grumble. And in Numbers 21.5, they say to God, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we, we loathe this worthless food. Right and here, the Israelites are worshiping their comfort. Right? Their, heart, their heart is focused on their own comfort versus on being faithful and obedient to God. And again, it doesn't go well for them. The fourth example is in verse 10. Paul writes, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Here again, Israel is complaining. While it's less certain, Paul is almost, is pretty much certainly referring to four, Numbers 14, 1 through 38. And what's important about this passage is this is where God definitively pronounces that the current generation will not enter into the promised land. But the food link is different here. See, Joshua and Caleb, they both stand up and they say to these grumbling Israelites that God has promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. If only they will trust Him. But instead, what do they do? They grumble and complain about the food that they are given. 
So Paul, right, having given these four examples connecting idolatry, food, and it not going well for the people of Israel, he then writes in verses 11 through 13, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall, right? The Corinthians think they're doing great. And Paul's like, hey guys, be careful. God's faithfulness to you does not equate to your faithfulness to God. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way so that you can endure it. Paul's like, hey guys, don't forget the past. You've got to learn from your story. Be careful, be wise. God is faithful. In each of these examples, right, God provides. But the Israelites, they kind of think they know better. They think they know what they need more than God. And how did it turn out for them? Right? Not that great. And I think Paul's trying to get the Corinthians to think a little more deeply about their actions, particularly as it relates to food and idolatry in the temples. He's saying, hey guys, just because you've done this forever and it seems like your, your faith life is going great, that doesn't mean that you are making good decisions. And then in 14 through 22, he more specifically applies this reasoning to the Corinthians. He writes, <coughs> Therefore, my friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean that food sacrificed to an idol is anything that an, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of the demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Now, there is so much going on there. I'm going to try and highlight three things that I think are really important. First, Paul says to the Corinthians, you guys, you got to flee from idolatry. Now, certainly this would apply to worshiping other gods outright, right? Numbers 25, they're worshiping the ball of pure, right, from that example. Exodus 32, right? They're worshiping the golden calf. But it also seems to apply to anything that we might worship that gets in the way of worshiping God. For instance, Israel's focus on comfort in the wilderness, right? They want different food or a quicker route to the promised land, so they're frustrated with God. They're focused on their own comfort, right? Instead of obedience, instead of an open-handed posture with God. One way to think about idolatry, uh, I would propose, is this idea of centered set. Right? So we often talk about this uh, at Wellspring, this idea of Jesus and his kingdom are in the middle. And the question is, are we moving towards him? Is, is Jesus and his kingdom, are they the center of our life? Or is something else the center? So Paul, right, applied to Corinth, Paul is saying to the guys, hey, it's one thing to worship the God right, at the temple when you're eating the food, but it can also be idolatry when you're worshiping the opinions of all the people that might have negative opinions about you, 
right, if you decline that birthday invitation. Or it might be the way that you worship your business, right, and you decline the invitation and now you, you have less connections you can make at that party where the, the food and the idolatry is taking place, right? Someone invites you and you're like, oh, I'm not going to go. Right? But you go anyway because you're afraid of what other people will think of you. That can be idolatry too. And Paul's like, beware of that. I know for me, uh, early in my following of Jesus, I, I had this experience of God's grace and presence, and I, kind of like the Corinthians, equated God's faithfulness to me with my faithfulness to God. And I started to think, man, God is being so good to me. I must be like doing something right. It took me a few years later to realize I was totally blind to a major area of idolatry in my life. I like the Corinthians, I just did what I always did, right? I just kept doing what I always did, especially when it came to idolatry as it related to money, right? I just saved all my money, I stockpiled it, I wasn't generous with it, I wasn't giving, and I had this idol, right? I was trusting in money to provide for me rather than trusting in God, right? It was an idol, right? When it talk about centered set, it was like competing with God with the thing that I based my life around, that I trusted in, and Paul is like, hey guys, beware of idolatry. Flee from it. And we'll get in this more later. Second, Paul says that uh, warns here about participation. Right? In Greek, the Greek word participate uh, is koinonia, to have fellowship or a sense of togetherness with. Right? He uses the example of the Lord's Supper. Right? When you have when you celebrate the Lord's Supper, you don't just eat bread and drink wine. You actually participate in the presence of God. In the same way, when the Israelites offered their tithe offering, right, in Deuteronomy 14, they'd enter in the presence of God. What did they do? They'd eat together. And when they shared a meal together, they weren't just eating, but they were in God's presence. And here Paul tries to reframe a little bit this question about eating and idolatry. He says to the Corinthians, you know, when you attend that birthday party at the temple at the god of Asclepius, right, the god of medicine, with whom are you sharing fellowship? Right? In whose presence are you eating? Now, Paul's already taught the Corinthians there's only one god, right? So they're not really worshiping another god. Instead, he proposes there's actually spiritual realities behind these seemingly innocent actions, this is where Paul introduces the idea of demons. Now, as modern people, sometimes we think like, oh, demons, come on. Paul, what are you going to start telling us now? To have witch trials and that the sun goes around the earth? C.S. Lewis says, though, that thoughts like this are just a form of chronological snobbery. We just think that because we're farther along on the historical line that somehow we are wiser or smarter or we sort of have our act together more. But if you stop and think about it, do you think it's crazy to believe in God? No, right? But if you think that God, who cannot be seen and can exist without being foolish, then why would we think it's so silly that lesser invisible beings might exist in the world? But if we grant the reality of an unseen, invisible, supernatural world, why would we put limits on what is out there? That maybe something is going on beyond what we can see. 
Right? And if you care about what the Bible has to say, even just a quick read will tell you that angels, other spiritual beings, are throughout the Bible. They're at the gate of the garden in Eden. They visit Abraham and Moses in the process. Prophets. They're present at Jesus' birth, the cross, the empty tomb, and the ascension. They visit Paul, Peter, and John. And if you flip to almost any chapters detailing Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, what do you see? Jesus dealing with evil spirits. Right? So if our hope is to practice the way of Jesus, to follow Jesus, then clearly we cannot just sort of dismiss this as sort of, I don't know, random, sort of random, random thoughts of ancient people. This is clearly pointing to a spiritual reality that exists beyond our sight. The New Testament talks about sort of these beings, demons in different ways. Paul writes in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Right? Paul is saying there's a battle going on between good and evil, between God and his adversaries in this world. And Paul's like, hey guys, you've got to be aware of this. Remember how it went with the Israelites when they didn't connect the dots between their actions and their life with God? Hey, don't follow their lead. You might think you're just going to this party, but what is going on behind the scenes? Right, Paul says, flee from idolatry. Second, he says, be aware of the unseen spiritual realities in which you are participating. And then third, he talks about how this idea of idolatry and this participation affects our life with God. See, the God of Israel loves people. He enters into relationship with people. And because of this, he's not neutral about our worship. He's not neutral about our participation. Therefore, Paul warns the Corinthians, right, in verse 22, don't make God jealous. And I think for some of us, we think, you know, jealousy, and we think of like the super jealous boyfriend who's super insecure. Or we think the word is often associated with like envy or coveting what someone else has. And yet, the word jealousy comes from the Greek word zealos, which is the English word, it, root of the English word zeal. It's applied to Jesus, in fact. When Jesus flips over the temple, the tables of the money changers in the temple, the text says that he is zealous. The zealous of the Father's house has consumed him in John 2.17. Right? Jesus cares about the house of prayer where people connect with his presence. Right? And because of this, the trade in that spot of the temple, it bothers him. Right? And here, Paul is telling the Corinthians, like, hey guys, God is bothered when we worship idols, when we make other things the center of our lives, when we enter into fellowship with those dark things, right? Because God loves us, He wants the best for us. He wants us to turn from those things, turn to Him so that we flourish. Elie Wiesel once said, the opposite of love is not hate, but indifference, right? God is not indifferent to us. God's zealous love actually highlights his care. Right? He's jealous or zealous because he loves us enough to act. Right? When we're going down a destructive path, he wants to stop us. Right? Just because I might be indifferent, it doesn't mean that God is. 
I remember, um, you know, Jeannie and I, our family lived in Silicon Valley for almost a decade. And I remember this moment, we flew up to interview at a church in Washington, a church I ended up working at. And we, I remember we went in the room and it was this surreal experience because we were just with these people and it was this sort of time and Jeannie and I left and we were like, what just happened there? And we were just like, that was so weird. And we, we put a word on it. We're like, they weren't cynical. And it was like, whoa. Because if, you, if you're in Silicon Valley long enough, people worship intelligence, right? They worship, but not just intelligence, not just like being smart, but this critical intelligence that's kind of like cynicism, always breaking things apart. And when we went up to Washington, just had this sense these people were just, they were open-handed. They didn't have this idolatry of intelligence and critical intelligence. They just wanted to be faithful. They wanted to trust God, not necessarily in their own mental process. And when we moved, I realized, man, the idolatry in Silicon Valley, worshiping critical intelligence, affected people. It affected their closeness to God. It affected what they were participating in with whom they were participating. I just had this sense as I left Silicon Valley that there was this spirit at play that was affecting people. And it wasn't just one person, it was affecting the culture. There was this cultural idolatry that was affecting people. Right? There were unseen forces under the surface that were affecting people and moving them away from God. And I think this made God zealous. Because right? when you start trusting in your intelligence, in your own ability to think through things, it sort of puts that at the center versus a trusting, open posture with God. And obviously God gave us our minds. I'm not anti-intelligence. I'm not anti-critical thinking. But sometimes we can put that at the center, and I feel like that's what we were doing in Silicon Valley. And when I moved up to Washington, I was like, oh, this is different. There was a spirit at play that was affecting us, and we didn't even know it. And I think the Corinthians are going about just doing the things they've always done and they're not realizing, man, this could have an impact on me. And so they write to Paul, Paul, what do we do about idolatry and food that's at these temples, right? Should I go to the birthday party? Should I go to the wedding? And Paul's like, you guys need to really think about this. Now that question, I think, feels kind of distant from us. So let's, let's sort of transition into, how does this then relate to us? How does this relate to our everyday life with God? Right, in the midst of fires, in the midst of COVID, in the midst of all that you're juggling, sort of in your, in your house, you know, just trying to stay breathing and not breathe in, all this particulate matter, you're trying to figure out, how do I faithfully follow Jesus? I think the first question from this text that I would ask has to do with idolatry and the heart. And it's clear that the Corinthians underestimate the danger of idolatry. They're just doing what everyone else is doing. What's the big deal? And I think we have a similar temptation, right? Because we don't light incense to other gods. We don't have actual statues, you know, wherever we go. We kind of think like, I don't know, idolatry? Really? Tim Keller in Counterfeit Gods writes, each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. 
We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. And this isn't just some modern idea. Paul says to the Colossians in Colossians 3.5, greed is idolatry. Right? Even Paul knew this. Idols are not simply about statues, but about what we worship in our hearts. Ezekiel warns the Israel's elders in Ezekiel 14.3, they have set up idols in their hearts. Right? Centered set. What do you actually trust in? What do you actually love? And that will reveal what you worship. And we can put anything at the center. The complicated thing is that often what we put at the center is good. We can put a successful career, a romantic relationship, material possessions, family, children, a social cause, others' opinions, one's beauty or brains. Our hearts can worship anything. We can put anything at the center. And I think this is one of the reasons why, if you go back to Greco-Roman culture, what do you see? They make gods out of everything. Why? Because you can. Because you can turn anything into a god. Right? They had gods for sex. They had gods for work. They had gods for war. They had gods for money. They had national gods for the simple fact that they are sort of exemplifying the simple fact that we can turn anything into worship. I think the question for us today is, what are you tempted to worship? Biblically, usually there's three lines here, three ways that we can be tempted to put something at the center, three basic metaphors. We can love idols, we can trust idols, and we can obey idols. I guess I just asked you this morning, what are you tempted to love more than God? What are you tempted to trust more than God? What are you tempted to obey more than God? Right, in my earlier life, uh, it was money, right? Like, I was tempted to trust in money rather than God for my provision. I think these days, like, with the fires and with COVID, I'm not sure what it is, but I think it is really easy to put our trust into all kinds of things because we have so much fear and anxiety and we have worries and stress and we can just put all of our sort of, I don't know, emotions, hopes into things other than God. Rather than letting go in God's presence and trusting Him, we try and cling to things. Like a person who's on the shores of a rushing river who's beginning to slip in. We just start grabbing at whatever we can hold that will ever, whatever will keep us linked to the ground. We just start sort of just anxiously grabbing for whatever. And I think God is saying to us, do you trust me? Do you love me? Will you obey me? In the chaos, are we willing to trust in God and not all the other things that might tempt us? I invite you this week, just take a little time 
Maybe God is already speaking to you as, we're, as we were praying earlier or during this message. I just invite you to take a little time. What are the idols that tem- you are tempted to worship? What are the things in your life that you are tempted to trust in or love or obey more than God? I invite you to identify one or two. Second, I invite you to uh, take that and then repent. So actually go to God and say, all right, God, like, I am sorry that I have done this. And that's what repentance is. Repentance is turning back, saying to God, God, I am sorry that I have trusted in this thing. And then three, I would invite you to take a moment to actually then confess with a brother or sister. Right? Our spiritual life isn't just about us talking to God, but about us then leaning on our brothers and sisters and saying, all right, I need help here. Identify, take some time to identify those areas in your life. Two, repent of them. Turn back to God and say to God, I want to be open-handed, God, help me. And then three, I invite you to talk to someone. Tell someone where your area of struggle is and ask them to walk with you through it. That you don't just sort of turn back to the idol that you've worshipped for so long just because it's easier, it's what you've always done. The second thing I think as this relates to our everyday life is the connection between worship and koinonia. Paul drives home that worship is never neutral. Worship is participation in something. Now, there's lots of implications to this, but I want to highlight one. Right? Just as the Corinthians went to this temple or whatever, and they, there was these unseen realities that Paul's saying, hey, you might be participating in something that you're not sure of. Right? Just as when you eat the, eat the bread and drink the wine at communion, you're participating in the presence of God. Even though you can't actually see God at work, God is with you. He's participating with you. I think Paul is making the case that God always wants to be with us. God always wants to participate with us. And this is a sign of God's love, right? That when we go a different way and we participate with something else, right? God is jealous. He's zealous. And what that reveals is He always wants to be with us. And I think that's one of the core things we forget in this season. With COVID, with the fires, we experience the absence of God. We experience the question of, God, where are you? And I think in this text, God is wanting to say, with, say to us, I want to be with you in everything you do. And God's heart is to be with us in everything we do, whether we're you know, walking down the street, whether we're in our house and stuck there, whether we're in our workplace, whether our marriage is in a good place or whether we are single, whether we are in high school or middle school or elementary school or we are seniors wondering what the next day will bring. God wants to be with us. He wants to see us flourish. He wants to be with us. He wants to surround us. He wants us to experience fellowship with Him. And I guess I just wonder about your expectations when it comes to experiencing God's presence. I think sometimes, if I'm honest, I expect God to show up at certain spaces and then I expect the absence of God in others. I wonder what it would be like for all of us to expect the presence of God no matter what we're doing. 
Not to expect his absence, not to expect, oh, this is just a mundane, simple, daily thing I'm doing. But what would it be like if we expected the surprising presence of God in everything we did? From washing the dishes to walking the dog to sitting, watching a movie with a spouse or alone, that God wants to sit with us on the couch and be there. And that actually, whether we see it or not, He is. God is with us. God is with you right now as you sit on your couch. He is in your home. As you listen to this message, God is with you. And with that, I just invite us to pray. God, you are the God of all creation. You are good and you are beautiful. And in this moment, God, we lay all of our idols at your feet. God, the ones we've had hidden in the closet, the ones that have just, we keep on our hip or in our pocket, God, we just give them to you and we say, God, we want with open hands to come into your presence. And God, as we do that, we just want to recognize that you are always with us. We can run from you, God, but you are always there. God, would you heal us, restore us in this season? You are the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You are the God of our ancestors. May we learn from their story that we might know you. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.